Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Well, good morning once again. You guys can grab a seat. Good to see you all again. Uh, if you are in Kingdom Kids classroom number three, Mr. Andrew, Ms. Sydney are waiting at the door for you. Have a great time back there. See ya. We'll miss you. Uh, for everybody else, uh, good to see you once again. Um, this morning, we're going to be uh, continuing our series through uh, parables of the kingdom. We've been walking through various parables in the uh, Gospel of Matthew and specifically studying what they teach us about the kingdom of God. And as we are walking into this parable here today, it's probably one of the lesser known parables, right? And part of the reason why is we've got some cultural distance between what's happening uh, in this text and uh, what we experience in our world today. But it's very interesting. Uh, This is another parable dealing with a wedding, isn't it? If you were here last week, we looked at a parable dealing with that as well. It seems like Jesus started off with this picture of farming, and as he's gotten more and more descriptive about this kingdom, it ends up looking more like a wedding. I mean, we keep hanging out at a bunch of weddings if we're stepping into Jesus' story. Now, I guess that shouldn't surprise us too much since the Bible does begin and end. It is bookmarked by a wedding of sorts. Um, But there's something in this to learn about the kingdom. So last week, if you joined us, the focus was on the celebration and the joy of being invited to attend the royal wedding. And what an honor and a privilege that would be. This week, the, the focus is a little different. This week, the focus is on the topic of preparation. In fact, I've entitled the sermon this morning, as you can see on the screens, Be Ready for the Kingdom. This theme of being prepared and being ready seems to run through this story. Now, as we think about readiness and preparation, uh, we have to acknowledge that this is a normal part of life, isn't it? Uh, We're always preparing. We are always getting ready for things. But we also have to acknowledge that some of us are a little better than others at preparing, aren't we? We can be honest with each other this morning, right? So if you know me, I grew up in a very type A structured and organized household. Okay, for those of you who know me, you're not shocked by this. I grew up in a very structured environment. And this has been a blessing and a curse for me as I've grown into adulthood. Um, You can read this how you want, but if we're getting ready to go on a trip of any kind, me, my family, my friends, whatever it might look like, it could be a short trip, it could be a long trip, really doesn't matter the length. About three days beforehand, I sort of have this internal like, like this trip is coming. My wife was laughing. She laughed out loud at that, right? Pray for her. Um, sort of have this internal, like, uh, something's coming, right? And I start thinking about, like, all right, I got to plan the laundry out, right? Like, I got to make sure I have the clothes that I want for this trip. I'm thinking about the trunk of my car already. Like, how am I going to fit all that luggage in there perfectly, like a good Tetris game, right? Uh, I'm already planning out ahead of time, you know, where we're going to eat. I'm all over Yelp and texting my friends. Food on trips is an important thing to me. And I've got a checklist on my phone ready to go, 
right? Having kids, as you can imagine, has only amplified this problem in my household, so you can pray uh, for my wife. Now, I know there are some of you out there who are like me, but I know some of you just looked at me like I'm like, from a, another planet by explaining that. There are some of you who have this ability to, I don't know, 11 p.m. the night before a trip, just be like, oh, okay, I guess I should pack now. That stresses me out, right? You're also the people who own like five extra phone chargers because you never pack them, right? We all, we've all been there before. Well, here's the deal. Whether or not you are good at packing or preparing or being ready for the things that we encounter in this life, uh, it is just a part of living, right? Whether you do it last minute or you do it on the fly or you prepare days in advance, preparation is just part of what it means to be a human being. And so what this parable is going to point us to is, yeah, okay, outside of the regular preparing you do in your life, are you prepared spiritually? Are you awake to the things that you need to be paying attention to in order to be ready for spiritually what is going on? You see, it's one thing to be on top of your Google Calendar or to check off those little boxes on your iPhone reminders, but it's another thing to think about the return of the king who is bringing his kingdom in fullness, isn't it? The stakes are raised just a little bit. Uh, there was a really old bumper sticker out there. If you're a bumper sticker person, God bless you, right? But I remember as a kid seeing this old bumper sticker that said, Jesus is coming, look busy. Anybody remember that? Jesus is coming, so look busy. Which is a little entertaining, but it's also a bit thought-provoking, isn't it? I mean, do we really live as if the king is coming? Do we really live as if Jesus is returning? Does that affect your life at all today? And if it doesn't, I think this parable has a word of exhortation and warning for us. So as we think about this parable of the ten virgins, here's what I think the main idea is. While awaiting the promised return of Jesus, we must stay ready and prepared. While awaiting the promised return of Jesus, we must stay ready and prepared. To see this, we're going to observe three points throughout this parable. First, we're going to look at what it means to await the king, awaiting the king. Secondly, the arrival of the king. And then thirdly, practically, what it means to stay alert for the king as we await his coming. But before we jump in and look at this topic of readiness, let's take a moment and let's pray. And let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for uh, this morning. We thank you for all the people uh, that are gathered here in this space. God, all the different stories, all the different giftings, all the different circumstances that may have brought them here. And God, as Chelsea said, we know that people are not here by accident. And so, Lord, I pray as we submit ourselves to your word this morning that, Holy Spirit, you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that can understand what your word says so that we might be ready. We might be stirred up to prepare wisely and not foolishly so that at that day that we long for, that day when you will return to set all things right that have gone wrong in this world, we get to enter the wedding banquet with you. So, Lord, wherever we need to do work on our hearts today, please reveal that to us. Stir us up as we get a glimpse of Jesus and the kindness of the gospel to faith and to repentance. And may we leave here changed because of it. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we jump into the parable, we do have to look at the context here in Matthew. Uh, we are right smack dab in the middle of one of the most challenging teachings from Jesus in all of his ministry. 
So if you've been reading our community Bible reading this week, we were in kind of Mark 13 near the end of the book, and that is Mark's version of what is called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus climbs up the Mount of Olives with his disciples. They start asking him questions about how is this all going to end? When is this kingdom that doesn't really look like a kingdom actually going to come? When are you going to return? You've promised to return. What does that look like? Well, Jesus, as he answers this question, actually tells five parables in a row. He talks about all these challenging times that are coming, lots of controversial topics, but then he breaks into five parables. We're going to look at one of those parables this week and two of them next week. Uh, But this is kind of his focus. It's on the future. It's on the signs of the end of the age, the arrival of the kingdom that he has brought, but not yet in its fullness. When that comes in its fullness, what will it look like? That's the topic of this parable. So this is actually parable number three, and let's look at the first section again as we discuss awaiting the king. Look at Matthew 25, verse 1. Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Now there's a subtle shift, if you've been with us, how Jesus introduces this parable. So far in the parables we looked at, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like whatever fill in the blank. The kingdom of heaven is like this. But notice here he says the kingdom of heaven will be like. You see, there's a future orientation to this. We live between the already of the arrival of the kingdom, but the not yet in its fullness, as I've alluded to. Well, the parables we looked at before are focused on the already. Jesus has come. What does that mean about the kingdom right now? But now as we get to the end of his life, he's focusing on the not yet. He's focusing on what is to come when he will return. And to do that, he invokes this imagery of both a king and a groom. A king and a groom. A kingdom needs a king. But in the story he tells, he's going to identify with the groom, one of the primary ways Jesus identifies himself in his ministry. Now, when Jesus tells this story, this parable to the original audience, they would have understood what he was saying. But for us, I don't know if you read that. Did that all make perfect sense to you? That's not how weddings exactly work for us, right? There's a bit of cultural gap here that we need to bridge between their world and our world. So let's begin by setting the terms here a little bit. Now, let's start with this, because this might be confusing to you as it was to me when I read this parable. The ten virgins, okay? Think bridesmaids, attendance at the wedding, okay? If you miss that, this is a real sketchy story, isn't it? So let's all acknowledge, sounds a little weird on the surface, but these are the bridesmaids. These are the attendants who would support what's happening at the wedding feast, just like bridesmaids would today. These women were likely friends of the bride or the groom, and they were enlisted to help in a very specific way, as we will see as the story goes on. These bridesmaids had the important job of lighting the path for the processional for the groom. And to do this, Jesus says they have lamps, okay? Now, lamps, don't think they're walking around with like a household lamp, all right? They're they're walking around with essentially a torch, right? Think like Indiana Jones, National Treasure style, right? We've got this torch, we've got this stick, and on the end of it is a rag, and the way they would light the lamp is by dousing that rag in olive oil. And the thing about these lamps is they would not stay lit very long. Most estimate they would burn really hot and really bright for about 15 minutes, 
So if you needed light for longer than 15 minutes while you're walking, you need a reservoir of oil to reignite the flame so it might last for a longer period of time. So we've got these 10 bridesmaids. They have the task of lighting the path for the groom on his processional to the wedding feast. And I don't know if you've ever been at a wedding where someone has been delayed, right? Um, I, I joked about delays in weddings last week, about the interminable time between the wedding ceremony being over and the pictures and the food, right, for the guests. That's just the worst. There is nothing worse, though, than the guests waiting for an actual wedding to begin. Well, remember, that's rare in our context today. Someone might show up late, but not late enough where people are going to go home and fall asleep, right? We would assume the worst has happened. Well, here in this context, remember, these weddings were multi-day affairs. I mean, this was a big celebration, a huge party. Everybody in the town would be invited. And so what would often happen is they would have multiple stops along this wedding day. So the first place the groom would go was actually to the bride's home. And he would talk with the bride's parents. It's sort of the last handoff before the marriage takes place. They might need to make some financial arrangements. They might need to talk through how this transition is going to look. But once he was done there, and maybe there was a small party even happening there, then he would proceed to the ceremony, which would likely be at his own home. So what Jesus is saying is while this groom is kind of getting his business in order, and while maybe a mini celebration is happening, Everybody else is waiting for that processional. These bridesmaids are waiting to light the path for the groom as he walks to his wedding ceremony and his feast. So that's the stage that Jesus is setting. Now, he says that five of the bridesmaids were wise and five were foolish. The only difference between the wise and the foolish was the amount of oil that they brought for this task. And this matters because the point that Jesus is saying is there's going to be a delay. There's going to be a delay of the groom. Because listen, if the groom came right on time, if the groom came right away, guess what? There is no foolish bridesmaids, are there? No, the bridesmaids would have had their oil and their torches ready. They didn't need much. But the thing that reveals their lack of preparation, the thing that reveals that they are not actually ready is the delay of the groom. And so both the wise and the foolish fall asleep. They fall asleep, but these are two very different kinds of sleep. Right? For the wise, there's something wrong with the sleep. They're prepared. They're prepared for the long haul. It says they brought flasks, plural, of oil. You see, they came knowing, hey, if the groom is delayed, we have a job to do. If the groom doesn't come right away, we still are called to light the processional for him to enter his wedding. And so they come prepared. So they sleep, but they sleep easy. They sleep in a way when, if I'm awakened, I know that I have what I need. But the foolish, on the other hand, see, the foolish, they sleep to their own shame. They're sleeping, but completely unprepared. And notice, by the way, they don't seem to be worried about it one bit, do they? I mean, they know they only have enough oil for that 15-minute burn. And the bridegroom is delayed in coming, but yet they just kind of go on with their business. Shrug their shoulders, they all get drowsy, they all fall asleep. That's what, this means this about these foolish bridesmaids, they're negligent. They are negligent in their task. They should have been going to get more oil immediately. If you knew you didn't have enough, 
and the groom is delayed, then man, go take care of what you need to. Go get the oil and return. But yet they fall asleep. See, they're not seeing the situation clearly. Let's step back for a minute. What in the world does that teach us about the kingdom? What does that teach us about the king who has promised to come? Well, Jesus is warning his disciples, listen, it might be a little while. It might be a little while. If you go back to Matthew 24, here's the question the disciples ask him in verse 3. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell to us, when will these things be? When will the sign of your coming and of the end of the age take place? Now you see, the disciples think everything's happening all at once. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going to set himself up as king, and his kingdom's going to be ushered in, and everything's going to take place. And Jesus says, well, not so fast, right? There's actually going to be a delay. Now for us, we have the advantage of 2,000 years of history to appreciate that delay, don't we? But for the disciples, it had to be confusing. What do you mean there's going to be a delay? And the way he teaches them about this tarrying, about this waiting, is through this parable. So the question is this, as we wait, because we are just like the disciples, we are still waiting for the kingdom in its fullness. As we wait, are we waiting with wisdom or are we waiting in foolishness? Are we waiting in a way that's prepared or are we waiting in negligence? I don't know about you, but I struggle immensely with waiting. I've confessed that from this stage nearly every week, right? I'm an impatient person. I struggle with that idea of having to wait for something, and I guess many of you do as well. But I think part of the issue is that we don't understand what waiting really involves in the kingdom. See, when I think about waiting, I think about something that is keeping me from what I really want to do. I am stuck in this situation where if we could just hurry things along, my life would just be better and easier, and I can get to do the fun things that I've envisioned for my future. Right? I experienced this with my son this morning. I was trying to cook him breakfast, and he doesn't understand the cooking part. He's like, I want eggs, and then expects them to appear magically on his tray. Right? He doesn't appreciate that there go, there's work that goes into that, that his waiting actually has a purpose. His waiting is for the purpose of the feast that will come of his scrambled eggs in the morning, but he doesn't have the eyes to see that yet. So here's the thing this parable is teaching us. Waiting does not equal inactivity. I think in our minds we associate waiting with we're just stuck not doing anything. That's not how waiting works in the kingdom. There's actually work to be done as we wait, and there is actually meaning in that waiting. I love how Eugene Peterson puts this in his very aptly titled book for our culture today. He says, a long obedience in the same direction, discipleship in an instant society. It's a good book on waiting. Here's what he says about waiting, which he equates with hoping. He says, hoping does not mean doing nothing. It is not fatalistic resignation. It means going about our assigned task, confidence that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. It is not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances with a bogus spirituality. It is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations of scurrying and worrying. And hoping is not dreaming. It is not spinning an illusion or fantasy to protect us from our boredom or our pain. 
Here's what waiting means. It means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. Waiting is a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he has promised to do. So my question for you, is that what your waiting looks like? Is that what your life and your faith are marked by? Or does it look a lot like mine where I fit into these categories of bogus spirituality, of being desperate and panicky, of maybe even dreaming of an illusion, all the things that Eugene Peterson pointed to there. Is that more what our waiting looks like? Or is it a confident expectation that God will do what he said he will do And that means that we go about our assigned tasks. Are we living that way? Are we living with an anticipation that the king could come at any time? But until he does, I'm going to go about what I have been called to do. Maybe the other way to ask this is, is where might you be acting like the foolish bridesmaids? And what would repentance look like to be prepared to bring your flasks of oil, so to speak? Is there something that you know you should be doing, but you're putting it off? Is there something that the Lord is calling you to obey in that you are looking at and saying, yeah, maybe later? See, the warning of the parable is that the groom is coming. The king is coming, and so are you prepared for that? You see, our waiting ought to be preparing us for what is to come which is where the parable goes next, at the arrival of the king. Look at verse 6. After they became drowsy and slept, it says, But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Have you ever been awakened from a deep sleep with a very loud noise, right? Parents in the room with young children. Yeah, happens all the time, right? You live in Florida, so likely you've been awakened by a strike of lightning that creates a loud thunder in the middle of the night, right? But have you ever been awakened from your slumber by something that startles you? Well, that's how the groom arrives. This idea of crying out is a loud, sudden shout ringing through the midnight air that the groom is here, that he has arrived. And this is precisely how the Bible talks about the return of Jesus, Paul, over in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry, same word, of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. You see, while Jesus is setting an expectation that he will be delayed in his return, don't confuse that with being delayed forever. Now, Jesus will return. It will happen. And when it happens, it will feel sudden. It will feel unexpected. He says earlier in 24 that it's like a thief in the night. You won't even know that it is coming. So there's a cry. The groom has arrived. And let's pick up the story in verse 7. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. See, that's what the foolish bridesmaids should have been doing already. But now, it's simply too late. The groom has arrived. They all of a sudden feel the pressure. They realize that they're not actually prepared. 
And in desperation, they look around and say, hey, can we borrow your oil? Now, this is not selfish by the wise. If they give up their oil, all of the torches are going to go out and no one will light the processional. Now, the wise, they were prepared. They came ready, and it would actually be foolish for them to give up their readiness. If they gave up their oil, they'd be in the very same predicament. Now, spiritually speaking, Jesus is warning us that you cannot find your preparation in another. Each and every one of us is individually accountable to the king. When he comes, you can't look at your parents' faith and say, but I'm with them. When he comes, you can't look at your friends in your city group and say, yeah, but I've been hanging out with them. No, are you prepared? Are you individually ready for the king's return? This is a warning that you must be ready. You must prepare. Otherwise, you will find yourself in a desperate situation. So as these foolish bridesmaids, they go out and they try to find more oil and buy it, this is a tragic ending in verse 10. While they were going out to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. It's a sober warning. You see, we see two stark differences of the consequences of these different bridesmaids. Right? On the one hand, the arrival of the groom is an occasion for great joy, great celebration for the bridesmaids who had prepared. Listen, here's what that means. If you are here and you've put your hope in Christ, you've put your faith in him, this is the moment that we are waiting for. This is the moment that we long for. This is the instant where all of a sudden Jesus returns and all that's gone wrong will be made right. Not only in our own lives, but in our broken world around us. This is what we long for. Titus 2 says this in verse 13. He says that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're looking for hope that hope is rooted in what is to come in the future. If you're hoping in your circumstances right now, if you're hoping in a job, if you're hoping in a relationship, if you're hoping in anything here on earth that's going to disappoint, the moment that we are awaiting, the real hope that we have is the returning of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. And when he returns, it'll be set right. And we trust, by the way, that he returns because he's already come before I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, we don't need to remind him how to get here. He already came here once. So what do we do? We long for that day. We live in anticipation for that day. And the reason why it's so hopeful is because of the way this parable tells us about the kingdom. It's so hopeful because the long-awaited groom will come for his bride. Christ will come for his bride, which is us, his people the church. And here's the beauty of it. We get to go with him to the wedding feast. Did you catch that emphasis in verse 10? The wise bridesmaids, they get to go with the groom to the feast. They get to go with him to the celebration. I love how Fleming Rutledge describes this. She says, we accompany him. 
we enter his eternal wedding banquet with him at his side, cleansed from all of our accumulated misdoings, freed from our bondage to the power of sin, in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ in all his splendor, the one who has loved us even unto death and hell, who comes again to receive those who belong to him. You see, if that doesn't stir up anticipation within you, I don't know what will. That is our hope. That is the day that we await. That is what we cling to right now in the face of uncertainties and suffering and sin and the hardships of this life. But on the other hand, this is a sobering day of judgment for the foolish bridesmaids. While they were out scrambling because of their lack of preparation, the bridegroom came and they simply were not ready. And they are tragically left outside of the shut doors of the wedding ceremony and feast. And to miss the wedding ceremony was to miss everything. To miss the wedding ceremony was to miss the whole point. They come and they try to plead their case, but Jesus is saying, no, no, it's too late. It's too late. There is a time to respond, and that time is right now, but there's a day coming when the groom will return and it will be too late after that. And unlike those who are prepared, these foolish bridesmaids, they are separated from the presence of the groom. That emphasis on going with the groom is the great hope that we have for those who don't know the groom. They will be separated from him forever. It's a bit of dramatic, stylistic storytelling here by Jesus when we get to the end, isn't it? I mean, they come and they knock on the door and the, the groom looks at them or he shouts out. He says, no, no, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Now, that's not entirely true, right? They're in the wedding party. Of course, the groom knows them. Now, he's getting to a deeper issue there. This is eerily similar to the language of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, when in verses 22 and 23, he describes a very similar scene. He says, On that day, when the king returns, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, very similar, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, the bridesmaids that were foolish, the bridesmaids who did not bring the oil that was necessary, they're displaying to the groom that he's really not all that important, that he really is not a priority for them. You see, we will be prepared for what we value. We will be prepared. We will be ready for the things that we value in this life, won't we? I mean, if you're getting ready to go on a vacation and you've been looking forward to this day for a long time, you're going to be ready, aren't you? You're going to map out what you need. You're going to be excited. You're going to enjoy yourself. right? When you sit down to watch your favorite football team on Saturday or Sunday, you're prepared, aren't you? You know the names. You know the, the way that we play the game. right? You know what's about to come. right? Florida State fans, amen, we can lament today. right? We knew what was coming yesterday. I was prepared for it. I don't know if you were. <sighs> Digress quickly. If you have a work presentation, if you have a public speech, are you going to show up to that unprepared? No, you're going to be ready for that. If you're getting ready to propose to the love of your life, have you prepared for that? If you're getting ready to have a baby, is the hospital bag packed? Right? The things that you value, you will be prepared for. 
these bridesmaids clearly did not value the groom. They did not value their role in the wedding processional. And so when the groom says, I don't know you, what he's saying is, I thought you were my friend. I thought you were going to be here for me. We enlisted you to this job, but your actions reveal you don't really care about it. It's really not a priority to you. You must be thinking and prioritizing and valuing things above the kingdom, above this wedding feast. And the tragedy of this is that eternity is at stake. Your very souls are at stake in this preparation. And the same is very true of us today. We might be 2,000 years removed. This delay might feel even more of a delay to us. But the question this parable forces us to ask is this. Do you value the things of the kingdom? Do you value the king? Are you really worshiping him or are you worshiping other things that you're getting prepared for more than the arrival of the groom to claim his bride? Does your preparation line up in such a way that it shows that is where your value is? That is where your allegiance is. That's what your life is living for. That's the question this confronts us with. So, what does that practically look like? You have been very theoretical so far. What does it practically look like to be prepared for his coming? Well, that's the last point, staying alert for the king. Jesus concludes this parable and really the whole section before it with these words in verse 13. Watch, therefore. That word watch means stay awake. Be alert. Be spiritually vigilant about what's happening in your life. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. He says, stay awake, stay alert, be prepared, be ready. You don't know when the king is coming. You don't know when the groom will return for his bride. So stay alert. But here's the thing, in order for this to be true, in order for us to be prepared for the end of all things, we can't disconnect that from our everyday lives right now. See, this affects where we are seated right now. This affects what's going to happen this afternoon. As we think about preparation, this is not some future thing. Right now, are you prepared? If we wait until the groom returns, or just in your life, if you wait until the moment of crisis to try to go out and buy oil, it's too late. The parable is saying you must have a storehouse of readiness available for your everyday life. Think about it like a hurricane, right? We all live in Florida, so this is a normal part of our routine. If you are unprepared for a hurricane that is coming, you are in trouble, right? And I don't even mean your home and your structure. I just mean like bottled water and bread, right? I mean, a week beforehand, if there's a storm anywhere near coming to us, people get crazy, Right? They go to the store, they buy 18 packs of water, all these loaves of bread, they've got it, and then it's like a sunny afternoon the next week. Right? But if you wait and the storm actually is coming, if you wait until the day before or the day of to try to get on Amazon and order that generator because all the stores are sold out, it's too late. Right? We're not prepared. You're in deep trouble. You see, we don't know the day it's coming. We take the hurricane analogy a little further. There's always uncertainty. 
That storm could come, it could take a turn. We don't know which direction it's going to go, but you had better be prepared. You had better have the supplies necessary in case the worst happens. Well, Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm delayed, but I am coming. And it could be any time. It could be tomorrow for all that we know. And what we need is a storehouse of readiness to be prepared for him. So how do we get that? Let me suggest three things. The first is that we must abide in him. We must abide in him. I love what 1 John 2, 28 says. This really brought this parable together for me. John there writes, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Listen, if we want to endure, if we want to be prepared, if we want to be ready, we have to abide in him. Isn't it so interesting that John connects abiding with being prepared for the end? He connects abiding, which literally means living with him, dwelling in him. He connects this deep relational connectedness with being prepared for his coming with confidence, not shrinking back in shame like the foolish. See, that's exactly what happened in the story, wasn't it? The wise bridesmaids, they had their gaze fixed on the groom. They were waiting for his coming. Yes, they slept, but they were ready to roll as soon as he arrived. They went about their business remembering the king. They were functionally in relationship with him, while the foolish are not. So the advantage that we get is we get to abide with the groom even before he comes. We get to live with the king even before the moment of his arrival comes in its fullness. And the way we do that is simply by spending time with him. Are you spending time with the king? Are you engaged in relationship with the God who has called us to himself? See, the way we functionally do that is through the means of grace that God has given us to experience communion with him. Listen, it's not flashy. It's not all that impressive. Here's what it looks like. It means that Those who are awaiting the king, we get up and we read our Bible. We open up the word of God, recognizing that this book contains the very words of God for us, given for our benefit and for our good. We get up and we read his word. We also pray. We pray. Prayer helps connect what we know to be true in our heads with what we might be fighting to believe in our hearts. We read his word given to us. We talk to him. We pray with him. We fight to show up here on Sunday mornings. Not because this is the best thing that's happening in town, but instead it's where we gather together and reorient our worship to our king. We remind ourselves of the gospel because we are a people prone to forget. And we do this together. We do this as the family of God, as brothers and sisters who have been adopted into God's family. God is our father and Jesus is our brother. And look around the room, you have a family. We can create a readiness as a community far more effectively than on your own. You see, all of these things are like oil upon the fire of our faith. All of these things are a douse of olive oil on that torch that you might feel like is getting ready to go out that reignites again. 
So the question this morning I have for you is, are you abiding in relationship with the King? Are you spending time daily investing in that way? So number one, we abide, but secondly, we prepare with endurance in mind. The parable is saying, don't just be ready for the short term, right? Those foolish bridesmaids, they were ready for the short term. No, no, you need to be ready for a lifelong commitment here. You need to be able to say, by God's grace, I'm going to make it to the end. And I want to give you some hope in that as we go. But he's saying, think about enduring. Think about perseverance. This is about making it to the end. We've seen this a lot, and maybe you've even experienced this in your own life in the church, but far too often people come to Jesus, and they're fired up, aren't they? I mean, their torches are burning hot and bright, but then all of a sudden, three weeks later, you're like, man, where did that person go? You ever had this experience? Friend says, hey, I believe in Jesus, and they're fired up, and they're excited, and all of a sudden, it just fizzles out really quickly. You see, they were prepared for the short term, but they have not prepared with endurance. They have not prepared for the long haul. It's almost like the parable of the sower, right? The parable of the sower, the first one we looked at, that, that tree begins to spring up. It, it seems to be growing something, but then all of a sudden, it's gone. It's choked out. It doesn't take root. So how do we endure? Well, it's simply taking that abiding. It's taking those means of grace and thinking about them in the long term. Thinking about them with the end game in mind. Let me give you another analogy. There's a difference between your checking and your savings account, right? If you didn't know that, we have some lovely people who would love to help you with that, okay? Difference in the way we treat our checking and our savings account. Checking account, deposit goes in there, and then it gets spent on all sorts of stuff, right? It's sort of a revolving door if it's anything like mine. Deposit comes in, then you've got your house to pay for, you've got a car, you've got gas, you've got lots of eating out, right? You've got all these things that are all of a sudden the checking account is going to. It's sort of this revolving door, but savings shouldn't be treated that way, right? Savings accounts, you're putting money in there. You're making probably a sacrifice to put money into that account so that when an emergency comes or so that when this big purchase in the future finally arrives, so that when the storms of life hit, you have a reservoir to pull from. What if we actually thought about the means of grace that way? See, too often we read our Bible, we're like, okay, sweet, set for today, right? I'm going to pray, and that's going to help me and my problems right now. Right? I'm going to show up to church, and then, man, the rest of my Sunday is going to be awesome. That might be true, but that's a checking account mentality, isn't it? Depositing in, it's going out. Money's coming in, money's going out. What if we viewed our abiding more like a savings account. Right? When we read our Bible, we might not enjoy it in that moment. We, not, we might not be fired up to pray. Right? Those, it might be really hard for you to be here this morning. But the thing is, this is not about just getting a quick fix. No, those things are forming us into people who will endure for the long haul. Reading your Bible when you don't want to is not necessarily about today. It might be about 10 years from now. Showing up to church each week is not necessarily going to help you right now in this moment, but it might help you when crisis hits five years from now. You see, we're trying to store up within us readiness. But here's the best news I could help you with this morning. That readiness ultimately comes from a source outside of you. If you go home and think, I've got to just try harder, then you've missed the point of this parable. 
That readiness, that storehouse of preparation to pull from, ultimately comes from something outside of you. There's this beautiful story in the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, by John Bunyan, that I think captures this really well. Christian, it's this big allegory, right? Christian, the main character, he's led to this place, this room where he sees a fire burning against a wall. It's just burning continually. And he also sees right next to that fire someone with some water, just dousing water on it, trying to put it out. But as he's watching this scene, the fire keeps burning bright. It keeps burning hot. It continues to stay lit. And so he's looking at this and he asks, how is this happening? What's going on here? And here's how the interpreter helping him answers his question. He says, this fire is the work of grace that is wrought in the heart. And he that casts water upon it to extinguish it is the devil. But the fire is not bothered by the water. It keeps on burning. Then he lets Christian in on the secret. He brings him around to the backside of the wall. And there, on the backside, the unseen part, I might add, is a man who has a vessel of endless oil that he is continually pouring into the fire. Christian, again, is confused and says, who is this and what is happening? And here's how the interpreter responds. He says, this is Christ, who continually, with the oil of his grace, maintains the work already begun in the heart, by the means of which the souls of his people prove still gracious. You saw that the man stood behind the wall to maintain to fire. That is to teach you that it is hard for the tempted to see how this work of grace is maintained in his soul. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The means of grace, brothers and sisters, simply keep us connected to the source. They simply remind us where the oil comes from. And it's not from us. It's being poured out continually from our Savior, who is guarding us and who has promised that no one will be snatched out of his hand. You see, there is one outside of us who continually pours the oil of grace upon our soul. And the closer we stay tethered to that, the more we will endure. Last thought quickly. Number three, we must remember who we are. We, like the bridesmaids, have been enlisted with a calling. And that calling is to do the very same thing that they did, to light the path for the groom who is coming. See, when we take our eyes off the groom, we will be unable to fulfill that task. But if we fix our eyes, awaiting the coming of the king, then we get to participate in the truest story above all other stories. See, we, like these bridesmaids, we are called to light the way for the king. We bring the light of the gospel into a dark world. We point people to the king, who is also the groom, who has made a covenant to never leave his bride, a covenant purchased by the price of his own blood. We are enlisted to help with that. We light the path, we point to the king, and we do so with endurance. So, you are here this morning. Praise God for that. But the question is, are you ready? Are you prepared? Are you abiding 
with your king? And are you lighting the path for the groom that has come and has promised to come again? Whatever business needs to be done in your heart to prepare for that day, I'd encourage you, don't put it off. The groom is coming back. Let's be prepared for his coming. Let's pray.